So we're in the uh, third segment of our study of the story of Ruth and Boaz. And we're getting down to the short rows here in terms of uh, their arrangement is about to come to its fruition and they're going to get married. And we're studying the godly principles that they exhibited as they pursued this. And in the course of all this, we're, we're talking about some things that are maybe a little bit difficult to talk about. It's not necessarily what young people talk about when they talk about dating, but it's the things that matter. And I want, I want you to notice something that, that Ruth did here at this point in the story. She's got Boaz's attention, and she's succeeding in showing a, a good heart and a good reputation, and he's succeeding in demonstrating himself to be a man of honor. Now look what she does. This is Naomi instructing Ruth what to do. In Ruth 3 and verse 3, she said, Therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Naomi told Ruth to get cleaned up and fixed up. And I want to talk about shallowness and looks and physical attraction in the issue of dating and marrying. One time I was uh, talking to a, a sister, a young sister in the church, who she deemed herself to be very unattractive, okay? And to, to look at things the way the world looks at things, the world would label her that way. And she'd picked out the most handsome boy at, at church at some meeting, and he wouldn't give her the time of day, and she was crying about it, okay? She was hurting. And she was like, he won't notice me, da-da-da-da-da. He thinks I'm too ugly. He's just shallow. And I went a different direction than she thought I was going to go. I said, I don't see you chasing any boys you think are ugly. You know, don't you stop and think about that. That was tough. I admit that. But she needed to stop and think. She was wanting them to have a different standard than she had. She was kind of being shallow too. I'm not trying to defend where he was at. I'm not trying to say he was handling things right. I really didn't know that much about whatever relationship they could have potentially had. We get it that looks and, and physical charm, we understand those things are overemphasized in the world. We understand that the entertainment industry and the, the health and beauty industries portray physical attractiveness in a way that's unrealistic. You, you don't have to read very many news stories or see very many headlines at all before you'll see one that's talking about how all these magazine covers and all these fashion photographs, they're all touched up, they're all airbrushed. None of those are real. And we understand that that industry in Western culture presents an unrealistic view of what a male or what a female should look like. We understand that. And I don't want you in any way to think of overvaluing these things, nor should we kid ourselves and act like physical attraction has nothing to do with selecting a mate. You select somebody that you feel some level of physical attraction to. Here's where the problem comes in, as, as best I can understand it. Uh, talking to a young man one time about a young lady that was interested in, in him and he and in her on some level. 
And as far as on the attractiveness scale, I think most people would, would rate them about the same. You know, neither one was a knockout. Neither one was particularly unpleasant looking. They were just kind of average looking people. But he, he, he talked about liking her and thinking she was a good person. But then he said, he kind of grinned and said, but you know, she's not up to my standards. So I said, I'm going to tell you about your standards. Your standards are you want her to look so good that when you're out with her in public, it feeds your ego and makes people think you're something that you're not. That's the problem with your standards. And that's the problem with our issue of physical attraction. The reason we, we tend to want somebody that's higher on that scale of attractiveness, it's not because that other person is not attractive enough for us to feel drawn to and build a meaningful relationship. It's because we want them to look better and what's the phrase they use? Trophy wife, trophy girlfriend, trophy husband. And that word trophy means, you know, it's supposed to make me look good. It's supposed, well, boy, he must be a stud. You know, he caught her. <laughs> what's one of the things they say? Wonder if he's got money. You know, it's like having the, the, the big fine vehicle. It's, it, it makes you look like something you may not be. And so the idea of being attracted or drawn to one another, it's, a, it's not about feeding somebody's ego. It's about participating in what God has made a legitimate part of the marriage relationship. When you read about the marriage relationship that's celebrated in the Song of Solomon, there's a lot said in there about the way they're physically drawn to one another. That's part of God's design. That's, that's how Eve got her name. You remember what, what happened when uh, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam? He, and, and God took the rib, you know, he made the woman. God and Adam called him woman. That's because when he woke up, he looked at her and said, Whoa, man, <laughs> she was beautiful to him. That's the way God designed for it to be. And so Naomi is counseling Ruth, Look, pay attention to how you present yourself to him. That's what we find the virtuous wife doing in Proverbs 31 and 22. She makes tapestry for herself, her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now understand again in the context of Proverbs 31, that's describing a king's wife. So she had access to purple clothing, which today is no big deal, but back then that was a really huge deal because of the rarity of those dyes. So she's you know, presenting herself in wealthy clothing because she's a king's wife, but the idea is she fixed up and made herself nice. And you ought to do that. And you ought to respect that but you shouldn't overemphasize to the point of being shallow the outward appearance because the Bible warns us that those things are fleeting in vain. That will change. She won't always look 18. You know, and he won't always look 21. But what will happen when you have that attractiveness, you know, to each other, when you have that sense of attraction and time takes its toll, and the babies that she's born for you, fellas, change her physical appearance. And you've loved her for years the way you should. And she's crying in front of the mirror because she wants to look for you the way she did 40 years ago. You, you won't get it because you'll see a beauty she doesn't understand. And she will with you, fellas, if you're looking at it right and approaching it right. Because genuine love changes how you see each other.
you see some old couple and, and you think, well, they're an old couple. I'm telling you, they're drawn to each other. They're attracted. They are. However much that may blow your mind. So there's a sense, of, <laughs> there's a sense of respect and honor in that. And think about, think about what Naomi is teaching Ruth here. She's teaching Ruth to show respect to Boaz and the fact that she just cleaned up for him. I'll tell you a story. Mom and Dad were dating. Mom would tell us this story in emphasizing the respect you show for a girl and the way you present herself. They were dating back in the 50s, okay? And in rural Stevens County, Oklahoma in the 1950s, if a guy wore jeans, he was presenting himself as kind of a James Dean character thug sort of fella. In that culture, in that part of the world, the rural agricultural, that, that wasn't how a gentleman dressed. Now, I know we don't understand that today, but that's the way it was then. Well, my dad showed up for their first date, peeling out and hot rodding down the driveway, fresh out of the military and feeling his oats, and he had on his jeans and his shirt and his hair slicked back and all that went with it. And she saw him walk up in his jeans and she said, leave and come back when you've got on a nice iron pair of khakis <laughs> and a decent shirt. And until you do that, I'm not going out with you. Because in that cultural setting, that was a show of disrespect. That had nothing to do with whether or not he was handsome. I could show you pictures to answer that question. It had to do with the way he presented himself, showing a level of respect and honor to her and indicating how he anticipated he would treat her and she indicated how she expected to be treated. You see? And so there's, there's more here than just being shallow. So I hope you can understand that in, in what we see uh, Naomi advising Ruth to do. Boaz played his part here, continued to go about his work, showing a cheerful heart. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 7, after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. He's worked hard. He's worked hard all day. It's very physically demanding. He is apparently the landowner and the, and the head of this business, so he has a lot of press, uh, uh, stress and a lot of pressure on him. But he's presenting himself in a cheerful way. Proverbs 15 and 13 says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but, sorrow of the heart, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. So I'm going to tell you something. The marriage vows are not a magical incantation that turn jerks into godly husbands. And they're not magical incantations that turn some heifer into a virtuous wife. Okay? It doesn't work that way. If he is gripey about everything he does for you before you get married, saying I do is not going to magically change that. So you need to build those kind of habits of that kind of cheerfulness because being that homemaker that we've talked about and that hard worker, that's difficult. That's physically and mentally and emotionally taxing. And being that wage earner and that provider that we've talked about a man being, that's physically and mentally and emotionally taxing. That's difficult. So she needs you to come home with a cheerful heart and be cheerful because what she's been doing for you all day and all week and all month and all her adult life is difficult. 
And he needs to come home to a cheerful wife and a cheerful home because facing the world on behalf of his family is not easy. I want to illustrate this by telling a story that I did not enjoy this happening, so I need you to enjoy it for me because I can't. But it illustrates the rigors, okay, of that day-in, day-out home life and the need, you know, to, to be able to lean on each other and find your partner being cheerful when you're having a tough time. There were different times in, in our marriage that, that my wife had medical problems that required me to continue working to make a living but also run the house and take care of the kids. And there have been times I had to do that for a few weeks, and that's difficult. It's a challenge to just do it without making a living, and you add that on top of it, it's hard. And so I was determined to do this right. I wanted to do a good job while she recovered from her surgery and, and make her happy. So I've got the ironing board out trying to iron the clothes like she did, which I still can't do, okay? But I was trying, and I try today. And I thought, well, how do you take this thing down? I didn't know how to take an ironing board down, so I stuck my head underneath, and I'm looking at there trying to figure out what to do. Somebody might know what just happened. I wonder what that lever does. I pull that lever and clamp. <laughs> it clamped shut on my head. So I did what any person would do. I stood up to look around and see if anybody was watching because I knew I looked like a total idiot. So I'm knocking stuff off the wall and hitting stuff off the shelf and my head was pounding. And I figured out how to get it unclamped and peel it off the head without losing too much skin. I thought, this is hard. She does this every day for me, although I think she makes it look a little more cool. <laughs> I went and talked to her about it, and I tended to her and did some stuff, and she was cheerful about it. She laughed me to scorn. <laughs> but she was cheerful. And I thought about, you know, she needs me to not unload every woe I've had all day long if she's been going through things like this. And I hope she thought about that too. I think she must have. It's there, day in, day out life, it's not, it's not always easy. It's not this storybook romance that the world feeds us. Life is filled with challenges and us being able to handle ourselves the way Boaz did here is part of what can take a difficulty and turn it into a pleasant home. Look at the marriage suggestion that hap happened here. If you back up and notice there on that previous slide, she laid down at his feet. And in Ruth 3 and verse 9, he said, Who are you? So she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Okay, this goes back to that whole marriage custom because she didn't bear any sons by her late husband. It's the duty of the of a near relative to take her and marry her and sire children by her. That was the proper and legal thing to do, and that was their custom as well. Now, this is an occasion to talk about something that's really, really important. I'm I'm picturing somebody, you know, I'm you know, you're waking up and there's this female laying at your feet. Well, that doesn't sound very proper in our culture, but we need to understand something that was going on here. 
She was not laying at his feet in order to entice him to evil. It had nothing to do with that. In fact, in their cultural mindset, the body language, language that was going on here wasn't anything lewd at all. It was kind of the opposite in a way. Because they're, mim stay with me, they're mimicking bird behavior. <laughs> as, as insane, yeah, I know. <laughs> I see the puzzle look. But what they're doing here is they're mimicking bird behavior. Let's establish something. We've seen Ruth conduct herself with love. We've seen Boaz conduct himself with love. And look at how love handles itself in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 6. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love as a guiding ethic for Boaz, will not allow him to look down there and say, well, I don't know who she is, but I know what's about to happen, and behave in a lewd way towards her. Ruth's love will not allow her to contemplate the evil or to think evil or to rejoice in the iniquity of saying, I'm going to lay here until he notices me, and then I'm going to entice him into sin. Love won't function that way, okay? And that works that way with you when you're dating and when you're pursuing marriage. Love will not allow a guy to say, if you love me, you would, as he's suggesting obscene behavior. If he loved you, he won't ask. He'll expect you to behave yourself in a chaste and virtuous way. And if the girl loves the guy, she won't participate in that. She won't suggest it and she won't uh, agree to that, okay? I know that's difficult. And the closer you get to the time of marriage, the more challenging that gets. So listen to the grown-up voices in your life that help you put safeguards in place, even if those safeguards become annoying. Like, you know, you better be careful about being alone together for very long. Maybe you need to not do that. Don't stomp your feet and gripe about the rules. Understand someone is recognizing the difficult battle that you're facing, remaining chaste, and respect that and accept their help. They've been there before if they're your parents, and it could be that they struggled too, okay? So understand what's happening here is a very chaste thing. What we observe is we observe Boaz spreading the edge of his garment over Ruth. That is a marriage suggestion. This was not a lewd act. It was based on what birds do with their young. Uh, I guess probably a lot of you have seen chickens or at least maybe seen videos of chickens where the mother hen will make a certain sound and sort of raise her wings up and spread them a little and the baby chicks will come under the wings and then she'll bring those wings back down. <coughs> chickens being domesticated, we're more likely to have seen that and I think some of you at least have. If you haven't, just imagine that. That is a mother-child body language, okay? There's nothing sensual or reproductive about that at all. It's purely parental offspring, okay? Other birds do that that are not domesticated. Birds in the wild do things like that. They make sounds and gestures with their wings to bring that young one, and the idea is you are coming under my wing for my protective care. All right. In the Bible, we find language that describes our relationship with God. 
that talks about us coming under the shadow of his wing or coming to him for refuge. And it's that same parent offspring idea of care. And that's what was significant in Ruth suggesting to Boaz, spread the edge of your garment over me. It's the language of proposal. What, what, do we, what is our language of proposal? The guy gets down on one knee in front of his lady and he offers her a ring. If somebody was unacquainted with our customs and our culture, they might see that and think, what in the world are they doing? Well, that's his language of humility, showing that he's humbly asking her, you see. He's trying to humble himself and making that request. And, and there's nothing intended to be intimate about that at all. It's intended to send a message via the body language that says, I'm committed to humbling myself and serving you as, as your husband. And so I'm humbly asking for your hand. And that's a little bit like what's going on here. When Boaz agrees to this, he's agreeing to accept responsibility for Ruth's survival. I'm telling you, fellas, you need to think about that. Because you, you become grown, you're responsible for yourself. You get married, you're responsible for her. And that is heavy, heavy duty. I remember very early in the marriage, just a few weeks in, waking up in the middle of the night and looking over there and seeing her, and it just really hit me like a ton of bricks. This is my responsibility, how this goes. Whether or not she eats, whether or not she has what she needs to survive, this is on my shoulders. Fellas, that needs to be a powerful feeling because he's saying, I'm the parent bird here and I'm bringing you under my wings for care. You know what that mother hen will do? She'll hunker down over those babies and if there's a wild animal that's threatening the brood, let's say, for example, a fox is coming into the hen house or wherever the chickens are, that hen will bow down with the wings over those young and she'll lower her head to push them all back in under the feathers and if that animal attacks her, she'll just lay there and die. Like that fox might jump on the back of her and bite the back of her neck to kill her. That's the way those kind of predators will do. And she'll just bend over and just take it. She'll sacrifice her life to keep those babies under her wings and that fox will kill her and eat her and the babies survive. Fellas, when you've come that far and you love her that much, that's when you're ready to do your job. You've got to love her enough you're willing to die for. Okay? Now, giving up the remote control of the TV is another question, right? Do you love her that much? That's another question. I'll let y'all debate that one when you get married. I, we still haven't solved that riddle. Real love won't act in a sinful way. Real love will act self-sacrificing, and that's what Boaz is demonstrating his willingness to do. Look at how he commended Ruth. In Ruth 3 and verse 10, then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. I get the sense there was a considerable age gap between Ruth and Boaz and that he might have been a good bit older than her because there's a time or two in the book he speaks of to her as my daughter. 
You know, and then you've got this kind of language here where he's commending her for not chasing the young guys. He recognized faithfulness and fidelity in her, and we've talked about this already, and I want you to think about it again. Proverbs 31 and 11, talking about that virtuous wife, says the heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of grain. I'll tell you, there is no feeling like the feeling of leaving home and maybe being gone for several days and knowing, fellas, knowing you can trust her. She's not going to cheat on you. She's not going to break those vows. She's not going to neglect the kids. She's not going to let the house fall into chaos. She's not going to let the family fall apart. She's going to, to use our modern expression, keep those home fires burning until you get home. I'm going to tell you, I've known some men that trusted their wives, but not safely so. You sat and talked to one of those guys for a while who painfully woke up to the realization one day that he trusted her and he wasn't safe to do so, hey, that's tears worse than a funeral. I've heard a lot more than just one husband or wife whose spouse betrayed their vows by cheating on them say, I would rather they have died than had this happen. That is sorrow beyond sorrow to put your whole heart into trusting someone and then break that trust. So be reliable. Be that trustworthy person. Don't have that roving eye or that roving heart. Ruth was virtuous, and that's how she was known to be. Ruth 3 and verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. I will do what you're asking. I will, I will make the commitment to marry you. I will extend my garment in proposal of marriage. And the reason I will do that is because you're known as a virtuous woman. He didn't say that because you're just really nice looking. I, I don't doubt that he was attracted to her, but that wasn't his stated reason. His stated reason was, I believe you'll be a good wife. You're shopping for groceries. Read the label. And if the label indicates that kind of fruit, then you can make your commitment based on that. Because the marriage vows are not a magical incantation that turn evil people into good and godly spouses. Look at the beauty of this reputation. Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. Would it be painful for you to know what your reputation is among your peers in the church? Ladies, would it be painful for you to know whether or not young men think of you as somebody that will be a good wife someday? I don't mean in a sense of being flirtatious toward you or interested in you. I mean just in how they evaluate you. Fellas, would it be painful for you to know your reputation if the ladies think of you as a loser? from Lucy Town, <laughs> or if they see you as a guy that you know I can trust, he'll be responsible. He'll take care of whatever family he has someday. Think about those things. 
What did Boaz continue to do here? He continued to show his generous heart and his love and his willing to provide. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 15. Also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. He just gave her a lot of grain. And she'd been working to bring and provide food, apparently for just her and Naomi, and he just gave her a lot more. That was a gesture not only of generosity, but of kindness. That's a way of treating her gently, of treating her like she's valued, of treating her the way a man should treat his wife. First Peter 3 and verse 7, Husband likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. What did he say for the husband to do here? To give honor to his wife, to treat her like the weaker vessel. Sometimes I've heard discussions erupt from this, that, well, in what way is she weaker than him? Why does that matter to be able to answer that question? I know how I treat fragile glassware. I know how I treat something that I think of as it can be easily broken. And if you understand that, fellas, then you're beginning to understand how to treat a lady and how a man of honor treats his wife. It's how Boaz treated Ruth during their period of courtship, marriage, arrangement, however you want to word it. Okay? And that's how you need to learn to act. I remember visiting with a young lady in the church that uh, was talking about a boyfriend that she had for a time, and she was seriously in pursuit of a meaningful relationship. She was thinking in terms of, I want to be a wife. I want to be married someday. And she was talking about how when she would do things for him, he typically didn't say, thank you, where are the nine? He didn't express gratitude. And she got to noticing he didn't ever do anything nice for her. You know, on a special occasion, it didn't have to be something that cost money. It could just be a nice gesture or a deed. He didn't open doors for her. He didn't didn't do anything. Maybe opening doors is not your thing. Find some other thing that's a thing that says you honor her and treat her that way. Well, she just got to noticing he wasn't doing all that. All the while from the time she first started dating this fella, (laughs) all the other grown-ups in her life, she was an adult, a young adult, her parents, others in the church, others in the family, everybody was telling her from day one, this guy's a jerk. You don't want to be messing with him. And her reaction was, oh no, this is magical, this is great, he's cute. But then it started doing this. Wait, wait, wait a minute. He always acts like a jerk. Oh, I know how I'll fix that. I'll be even nicer and give even more. I, I think you could find some Christian value in that idea of trying to treat someone well who acts like your enemy. I'm not sure you could find Christian value in insisting that you keep dating that person. But you can find value in treating them well. And that just kept rocking on and kept rocking on and kept rocking on. Did her eyes open up? 
before she finally decided to marry the fella? Well, I, I guess you're probably curious. I sort of run a generic story that's about two different ladies that run a pretty similar parallel line. One of them opened their eyes and said, I'm about to mess up and I need to bail out, and she did, and the other one didn't. And her life of being abused began on her wedding night. And she was regularly beaten severely <laughs> until it finally crumbled around her. What really matters is not what decision they made because those decisions that they made are now in their past and they've borne the fruit of those decisions, good or bad. What really matters is what decision will you make because the marriage vows are not a magical incantation that turn cute jerks into wonderful guys, okay? Ruth waited patiently. This is Naomi telling Ruth what to do. Sit still. She, then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. I, to me, this may be one of the most difficult things about courtship, and that is sit still, be patient, and wait. We attach a sense of, of worth in, in the years that most of you are living in. We attach a sense of worth to whether or not we can find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, and that's really, there's a kernel of that that's understandable because God looked at Adam and said it's not good that man should be alone. We're wired to need companionship and so it's good that you recognize that. But your worth is attached to God. Let God worry about your sense of worth and do the best you can to not let your confidence sink because you hit a dry spell in your courtship. The Bible says in James 1 and verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let patience do its job. Now, it needs to be said, patience does not mean be idle and wait for magic to happen. Patience means you be busy doing your part, but don't give up. So you be busy doing your part of presenting yourself as that virtuous girl or presenting yourself as that Christian gentleman and you interact with others in a responsible and God-honoring way, and be patient with that process. I'm not going to tell you that God has some one special person reserved for you that when he's ready, he'll drop them in your life, because I haven't read that yet in the scriptures. I'm not going to make any promises about when you will or won't find a mate, because those aren't my promises to fulfill. All I know to do is to tell you just focus on being the person God is calling you to be and do that patiently and don't give up your standards. Don't get in a mode of, well, I guess I'll settle because that is a recipe for disaster. It makes me think of a conversation I had with a young lady who was crying and upset because she was sure she was going to die an old maid. And I said, well, hon, how old are you? I'm 14. <laughs> I understand. I get it. But be patient. 
Okay? That's not a guarantee that things will happen when you want them to happen, the way you want them to happen. That's a guarantee that that's how God has asked us to conduct ourselves. And sometimes it just takes more time than we really want for things in life to come together, where you're talking about starting a family or something else. Okay. I want you to notice something else we read in Luke, or, or Ruth 3 and 18. What, look at what Naomi said about Boaz. The man will not rest until he has concluded the matter. <laughs> Can I please just say I wished I could turn those words into a baseball bat and go around beating young men in the head with it? <laughs> I promise I'm really not that violent. But you're looking at a biblical picture of manhood. This guy won't rest until he does what he said he would do. Boaz will finish what he started. So I'm going to tell you something, fellas. Don't go chasing your dreams. Go chasing God's will for your life. I know the world is telling you it's okay to dream, and it is okay to dream as long as you realize your dreams are probably really dumb and you'll probably fail at them. <laughs> so don't chase your dreams. Chase the will of God. Don't chase your favorite thing in life. Chase what will feed your family. Don't pursue things that are suited to your interests. Pursue things that are suited to God's interests that will make you this kind of finisher. Where the old brothers and the old sisters in the church will look at you and say, now that fellow right there, he won't rest till he does what he said he would do. Be that kind of guy. And girls, you look for that kind of guy because that's how you find that kind of husband. Because I do doesn't magically turn quitters into finishers. Okay? Think about what Jesus said with respect to spiritual finishing. In Luke 14, verse 28 through 30, in talking about some who don't follow through with their spiritual commitment, he said, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus portrayed guys that don't finish as someone who's subject of mockery. He did not smile, did he, on quitters. And you might think, well, but David, in this passage, he's talking about following through on your spiritual commitment to God. I know that. What do you think marriage is? Isn't that a spiritual commitment to God as it relates to this partner that you're welcoming? That's exactly what it is. And so in that sense, what Christ teaches here about fundamental discipleship speaks to us about the ongoing commitment of that discipleship in the way we fulfill our commitment to our mate. <coughs> so don't be the one that's the right subject of mockery. Be a finisher. In the book of Proverbs, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 27, he said, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. This passage portrays to us the idea of priorities. 
the idea of priorities and taking care of your responsibilities and the idea of tediously following those priorities all the way down to the completion of the job. Back in the early 20th century, when farming here in the United States was primarily done with horses and with oxen, pulling the, the, the farm implements, here's what the good farmer did. Let's say he had big horses, like kind of like the Clydesdale horses you see, They're just huge animals. That's the beast of burden that pulled the plows and pulled the wagons and the harvest equipment and all that. After a long day of work in the field, he's very hungry. He, he's, he's so hungry, he's, he's just ready to eat a feast. And that feast is ready and waiting for him in the house. And he brings those horses up from the field, and the first thing he does is he looks at the door of that house, and he smells his food, and he turns and he goes the other way. And he leads those horses to the barn. And he gets them to their water and to their oats and to their hay. And here's why he does that. The reason there's a meal in there on that table waiting for him in part is because of those horses. And if he doesn't take care of those horses, then there'll be no meal to come home to. <coughs> so he finishes his outside work first. He takes care of what makes him a living. Okay? And then from there he goes on and finishes his other tasks <coughs> all the way down to the completion of his duties at home. And when everything else is done, then he sets down to that meal. And he enjoys and appreciates that meal. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And there's a lot of counsel there that guides us towards proper godly manhood. Be a finisher. You prioritize your task and you set about the steady completion of those tasks until you bring them to their fit conclusion. Now that concludes our study this morning that just covers the story of Ruth and of Boaz. And after this, they got married, and they bore a family from whence sprang King David. So this story really, really matters in the great uh, biblical timeline of God's scheme of redemption. The two studies that will follow are just studies about our conduct during the courtship process, and I look forward to talking to you about those things as well. But as we bring our study to a close this morning, I want you to think about that idea of commitment and the honor of following through and fulfilling that commitment. And think about your commitment to God, the one that matters most. Because you see, if you tend to your commitment to God, your other commitments will fall in place. Because you're committed to God, you'll follow through with these other things. So think now about being committed to God. Have you become a Christian? Maybe it's time for you to make that commitment. I hope you're thinking about that. If you're spiritually and mentally and emotionally ready, I hope you're thinking about that. If, if you've become a Christian but you've not been solid and true to that commitment, think of the honor and the value of following through. Don't be the guy with a half-finished tower that others mock, but be that spiritual finisher that God has called us to be. Perhaps we can assist you with our prayers in that endeavor. Or perhaps we could assist you in obeying the gospel. If we can help you in either way, please come have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.